like we got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. that. We don't got time for that. All right? Let's go. Break it. Break it. Glenn Cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320-KLWN. Hey, what's happening? Welcome into another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I am Derek Johnson. I've got a new friend of the show in with us in the KLWN studio. Lane Gillespie is going to be here. You're going to hear from him kind of throughout the day here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. And it is Rock Chalk Round Ball Classic Week. We are going to be out at Jefferson's West on Wednesday, uh, 3 to, sh- to 6 for the live show. We're going to be giving away some stuff. I think we're going to have some extra RCST trivia t-shirts if you never got one, along with some other goodies to give away over at Jefferson's West. And if you make it out to either Jefferson's West or the one downtown, and you tell them you're there for the Rock Chalk Round Ball Classic, I mean, it's Wing Wednesday, so why would you not come out on a Wednesday? 50% of the proceeds are going to go to the Rock Chalk Round Ball Classic. So we hope to see you there on Wednesday. If not, or better yet, even if you do, uh, come on out Thursday as well. We're going to be doing a live show at Free State. We're going to have a long edition of RCST on Thursday. It'll be from 3 to 7, and then we'll have the game right here for you on KLWN at 7 o'clock, which hopefully you can make it into the game. You know, pull up your earbuds, listen to the stream while you're watching the game. Um, that's on Thursday. And then Friday, they have the Rock Truck Round Ball Classic dinner event at 6, which I think there might still be tickets to. And Saturday is the Rock Truck Round Bowl Classic, where you can bowl with all your favorite KU stars. So Rock Truck Round Ball Classic week, we're going to be having players and uh, you know coaches of the event on with us over the course of the week. That includes later today, Cole Aldridge, the former KU legend. I guess if you're a legend, you're not former. He is a KU legend. Cole Aldridge is going to join us at 5 o'clock. We're going to talk a little about the Round Ball Classic with Cole. We're going to talk some KU hoops. We're going to talk some uh, stories of, of his time at KU hoops. Cole's always a good time catching up with him. Just such a super nice dude. And he is so impactful for the uh, Rock Shock Round Ball Classic. You hear Brian talking all the time about how, you know, if he, he needs somebody to, to call up one of the kids, they're sick, they're not feeling well, and they need a little extra push that day. Like Cole is one of those guys he can easily text and be like, hey, could you help me out here? Can you send a video? Can you give some words of encouragement, and Cole is usually one of the first guys that um, will do that and will we'll pop up on the list. So we'll talk with Cole Aldridge at 5.05. We have David Lesky of Inside the Crown. He's going to join us at 3.40. We're going to talk Royals with David Lesky. The uh, Kansas City Royals continue to struggle, to uh, say the least. NBA Finals Game 2, though, was last night. Golden State beating Boston 107-88 after Boston took game one blowouts just continue in the NBA finals this continues a trend where over 50 percent of the NBA playoff games have been decided by double figures I I'm just at a point where I'm expecting you know I all these series have been long series like the the Heat Celtics long series goes seven games um Suns Mavericks go seven games even the Bucks Celtics that went seven games like most of the games were blowouts they were just long series I, I honestly think, like, if I was setting an over-under for what are actually going to be single-digit games, because we're 0-2 so far, one and a half the rest of the way, 
Now, you could have up to five more games. You could also have at minimum three more. I think that's probably the right number. And that's not ideal, I guess. And, and if you were saying, like, how many of these games are going to be determined by a one possession game? And that's kind of um, open to interpretation. Is it a one possession game because it finishes that way? Like, what if it's a six point game and the other team hits a three at the buzzer that didn't really matter? Is it a one possession game because the team was down two and, and had a shot with 30 seconds left, missed it, and then fouled, and the other team ends up winning by four because of that? I don't know what the clarification is there, but at this point, like I'm only expecting, if you give me one game that's decided that way, where it is that one possession game, I feel like that's probably all I'm expecting at this point. So it is unfortunate, but I do expect a long series. I do expect this to go back and forth. Golden State was just fantastic defensively in that game too. And that's been the thing for the Celtics. They went from being a below average team in terms of record under 500 about the 40-game mark of the NBA season, to all of a sudden just being this powerhouse. They were the best defense in the NBA. Role players started getting hot, hitting a bunch of threes like you saw at the start of the fourth quarter in game one. And then you have Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, who are two stars in the league who are switchable, versatile players on both ends of the floor in a playoff setting where versatility and having good wings is of the utmost importance. And, you know, you head into game two where it almost feels like if Boston wins game two, like the series is just over. And then you're starting to talk about, is this going to be a sweep? So from that standpoint, it was very much, you know, there was more to be gained for Golden State to win the game than there probably was for Boston, who at this point, Boston is also sitting there and going, okay, but we did what we accomplished. We won our one on the road. Now, if we just take care of business at home, we're going to be totally fine. And it was Golden State's defense that really led it. Steph Curry has been fantastic in the two games so far. I know that was a big conversation, a big talking point coming into the series that as good as, as the Warriors had been all this time and Steph Curry going for his fourth ring, oh, but he's never won finals MVP because Kevin Durant uh, won it last couple of times. And prior to that, the first year that they won the title when the Warriors uh, took down the Cavs, it was Andre Iguodala who won the award. And it's funny because I don't even think Steph Curry got a vote. There was like a, a dozen votes, and it was either Andre Iguodala or LeBron who was just unbelievable uh, over the course of that series. It was averaging like 36, 12, and 10 or something ridiculous. And so there becomes this narrative that, you know, Steph Curry, oh, he's not performing in the finals. Game, which I, It's just silly, and I think it's just kind of the – the NBA uh, kind of universe of how we operate with ring culture and that type of stuff just to begin with. Um, but so far, he's he's got to be the front runner if the Warriors win it to win finals MVP right now, just the way he's performing. And honestly, if you were to give a finals MVP right now through two games, even though you don't have one team winning over the other, it would be Steph Curry. Like Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum haven't really been too efficient so far in the start of the NBA finals. Um so you have him going off, but that was about the defense last night because Clay Thompson continues to struggle through a couple games for the Warriors. Um, Draymond Green, not really an offensive threat. Same with, like, Kevon Looney. You know, you do have the the crazy shot made by Jordan Poole from, like, half court, like a 45-footer or whatever on the crossover, and unbelievable testament to the shot-making uh, that kid has. 
But like outside of that, it, it just was about the defense. You hold the Celtics to 88 points in that game. And that's what I think sometimes we can get lost with uh, for, for Golden State. I mean, the big conversation coming into the series in terms of team play was what's better, the Golden State offense or the Boston defense with how good those two have been. It's the immovable force versus the unstoppable object conversation. But what really is probably going to determine it is is that other one because if both are elite if both of them are the number one at their respected category in the league then it comes down to finding things on the margins in those other areas so for golden state they do have a really good defense but is it going to be good enough to slow down boston boston does have a, a good offense when you look at these role players who can make shots and and those two stars at the top but is it elite enough to overcome the golden state defense in game one it was more than enough for Golden State to win the game through three quarters, and then Boston's offense overcame things in the fourth quarter. Whether that was Golden State's defense playing poorly or Boston just shooting the ball unconsciously. Game two, you shut them out really the whole way through, 88 points. That's the difference. Um, I will say this, though. It, it's kind of odd that in the finals you look at you know game one, Celtics offense goes off. They score 120 points, that huge fourth quarter. Jason Tatum struggled mightily in game one. Game two, he was actually pretty solid. He actually had a, a pretty good scoring game, and they end up having a worse offensive game, which I guess just illustrates to me that maybe this all it comes down to is the role players for Boston if they're hitting shots or not. Like, yes, if Jason Tatum goes for 50 points in a given night, but I'm not sure there's that much of a difference on the margins for what's going to happen in this series if Jason Tatum scores 20 versus scoring 30. I don't think it's going to be that big of a difference. It's just going to come down to what do those role players kind of look like. Are they hitting shots consistently? Are they hitting a bunch of threes for this team? Um, so what happens from here? We're tied 1-1. You go to Boston for the next two. I do kind of miss when they had the 2-3-2 format. Now going back to the 2-2-1-1-1. Warriors have to steal one of the next two on the road because – you go down three to one uh, against a team that has won eight road playoff games so far. I mean, they won three against Miami. They already took one against you. I, I guess the point I'm making is that I don't think you can just count on the idea that, hey, if Golden State only wins one of the next three road games with Boston, they're just going to win the rest of their home games and win the series. They might. But the way Boston has been playing on the road, you almost have to assume that you might lose one more home game, which means you're going to maybe even have to win two road games. So from that standpoint, um, you're going to have to win one of these next two. You can't fall behind 3-1 to Boston. Uh, I, I mean, the good news for them is that Boston has been more beatable at home with all those road wins. You would say, oh, if they've been sweeping these series, have they been winning in five? No, they've, they've been vulnerable on their home court as well. So uh, we'll see what kind of happens there. But how about the way that Andrew Wiggins has been performing in the NBA Finals? It, um, I think, is such a testament to what being under the right wing can kind of do for you. And I don't mean positionally wing, like being under the right mentorship, being under the right, I guess, leadership or veteran players above you, what that can possibly do for you. I think when you look at the Warriors and, and you're trying to decipher the conversation of, like, who's the second best player on the team? Stephen Curry is, yes, by far the best player on the team. If this was pro prime Clay Thompson, yeah, it's it's not a discussion. It would be Clay Thompson. But Clay is still coming back from injury. He's shooting, like, 30% in the two finals games so far. 
Um, I, I think what we've seen with Clay is that through his recovery right now, he's not nearly as good of a defender. Like we were used to him being an all NBA defensive player. Right now, he's just like a average defender. I mean, there there's times when defenses are kind of cooking him, but you think he knows what he's doing. He's a smart defender, and he gets the team concepts that, yeah, probably about an average defender on that end right now while he's recovering from the injury. Maybe next season after the offseason of work, then, then that changes. But at this point in time, he's more of an inconsistent player. You're having games like this where in back-to-back games he's shooting 30%, and then you could have a game six type of clay performance in a random game six where he does go for 35 points, and he does hit eight three-pointers or, or something, and it is all working for him. But over the course of just consistently – Andrew Wiggins right now is a better player than Clay Thompson. He's better on the defensive end. Um, and like I said, even though Clay has the higher nights of potential, even though Clay has the higher peaks at the moment, right now, with Clay returning from injury, Andrew Wiggins is a more consistent option scoring the basketball. If you wanted to argue Draymond Green is the second best player on the Warriors, I would actually be probably fine with that as well because, I mean, when healthy, Draymond Green, in my opinion, is probably the most impactful defensive player in the NBA. And, you know, you see Rudy Gobert winning these awards and stuff. Uh, Draymond Green has said it himself. There's a difference between an 82-game player and a 16-game player, referring to the differences in the regular season versus the playoffs. Rudy Gobert is the best defender in the NBA in the 82-game season. Draymond Green is the best defender in the 16-game season. And Draymond Green's still top five in the 82-game season, too, like maybe number two even. So um, from that standpoint... The fact that he can be that good to the defense, the fact that he is so good at passing the ball and, and understanding schemes and you know being a facilitator and stuff and, and getting rebounds, like you can make that argument. But again, like with Draymond, he's averaging six points per game in the finals. You're not really getting much offensively there. I mean, there were, there were days like four or five years ago where, yeah, it wasn't 20 points per game from Draymond, but he was still hitting a good amount of threes. He was still giving you 10, 12, 13 points per game. That's not even really the case anymore. So, again, because of the offensive impact, you'd still argue Andrew Wiggins second-best player on the team. And then you have, like, Jordan Poole. You could say he has his moments. He has his, again, like that that kind of half-court step-back three at the buzzer to end the third quarter where he has so much shot-making ability, but he's kind of a turnstile at times on the defensive side of the court. And so Andrew Wiggins, again, like kind of in the same light as, as Clay Thompson, like Jordan Poole offensively, too, is a spark plug. He can be a guy that goes for 35, 40 points on a given night. He can be a guy that goes for 10, whereas Wiggins is going to have probably more consistency offensively, plus being a better defender. I mean, it's it's crazy that, like, think that through. If you would have said two, three years ago, Andrew Wiggins would be the second best player on a possible title winning team, that sounded a bit a bit crazy. And that was that was probably always the expectation coming out of high school and when he comes to Kansas it was this guy can be the best player or the second best player on a title winning team. And through kind of this ride, it almost felt like, okay, maybe, yeah, I don't know. He can be like the third, fourth, fifth guy on a title winning team. He is the second best right now. Um, and I think going back, like this is a lesson probably in NBA roster management. Like you just acquire whatever talent you can. You get the best players you can. You figure out the rest later, whether it's the draft, whether it's free agency, whether it's figuring out the scheme, whether it's figuring out trades. What I'm referring to here, this feels like forever ago, the Warriors signed uh, D'Angelo Russell. And at the time, it was like, why did they sign D'Angelo Russell? You have Klay Thompson, you have Stephen Curry. Like, where is he going to realistically play? Because he's not a three. 
He's not really even a two. He just is a one. And they had injuries that they kind of dealt with, and, and they played him through it and stuff. I don't think the point was ever to have D'Angelo Russell long-term as it ended up not happening. It was, hey, we don't really know what else to do with um, a roster management that can make it better right now. This is our last option. So instead of just saying, no, it's not a great fit, we'll just pick up some guy uh, who's going to come off the bench and, and be a 3 and D wing. Let's just get the best player. If he wants to come here, let's get him. And then we can trade him six months from now. And that's what they did. And they got Andrew Wiggins. They got a first-round pick, which ended up, I forget if that was the first-round pick that uh, got them Moses Moody or, or one of their other firsts. But nonetheless, they, they got a bunch of assets and, and value out of it that it worked out for them. And now turned Andrew Wiggins into your second-best player on your team. And, and it's cool how much a winning culture, like I was saying, and veteran leadership helped him along. Because think about it. This is a guy in Andrew Wiggins who... From the time he's in high school, maybe sooner, I don't know, maybe, you know, in, in middle school, people are talking about him being the next great thing. And then by the time he gets to be a, I don't know what, junior in high school, senior in high school, people are talking about him as the greatest prospect since LeBron James. And there's all the hype around him. He commits to Kansas. And you're thinking this guy is going to be, you know, the best player we've ever seen, the best one and done we've seen. He comes in has an objectively great season with Kansas. He breaks the KU freshman scoring record. He averages 17 a game. He's a second-team consensus All-American, so he's one of the 10 best players in college basketball that year. But at the same point in time, you know, there's some Kansas fans that feel like there was meat left on the bone because the hype was almost too much to overcome, and because of that team losing in the second round with Wiggins having a bad game in his final game in a KU uniform. But along the way, that whole path, like, he's the guy. No matter where he goes, he is the guy. He's the guy being looked upon to be the leader on the team. He is the guy that's being looked upon to be the alpha on the team, the go-to guy on the team. And you come to a Kansas, and, and it wasn't a situation where he comes in and, and like Josh Jackson. Josh Jackson comes in, great one and done. He had Frank Mason as the leader of that team. He also had Devontae Graham and Sfima Kailuk and all these guys, Landon Lucas. With Andrew Wiggins, he comes in with a bunch of other freshmen onto a Kansas team that loses a bunch of players from the year before. So he doesn't have the ability to say, hey, not only do I get to play great and play with a free mind, I don't have to be the leader of this team because we got Frank Mason. No, he has to be the leader of this team as well at such a young age. And then he gets he gets drafted in the NBA. He goes to the Cavaliers, which I would love to see that alternate universe where the Cavaliers just decide Hey, we're not trading Andrew Wiggins for Kevin Love. We're just going to keep Andrew Wiggins. I wonder what that looks like. It worked out for the Cavs. They win a title. Um, but I do wonder if, I, I don't know, how that would have affected things both long-term and short-term. Do they still win a title in the short-term? Do they have more success long-term? Do Kyrie Irving and LeBron James stay around? I I don't know. Or does Andrew Wiggins just you know suffer being in Cleveland? Who knows what the repercussions of that is. But he ends up getting traded to Minnesota. And, and now with Minnesota, he becomes, once again, the guy. There's not a lot of talent or veteran leadership or these other great players or other stars on that roster with Minnesota. It's a bad team. And so all along his way from high school to college to the NBA in his first however many years, four or five years in the NBA, even when they drafted Carl Anthony Towns, who was the number one pick in the draft and ends up being an all-star early on in his career, and it's pretty clear early on that Cat is the best player on that team, it's still Wiggins being like the guy because he's kind of the veteran there to Cat to where he is kind of that, I guess, like, hey, can you be the alpha or can you be one of the alphas of this team? And all along this way, that is what is being asked of Andrew Wiggins 
yet all along this way, he has never had the opportunity to learn from somebody else to do it. And for some guys, that doesn't matter. Like, some guys are just built special. Um, but other guys, you do need to kind of, you know, it's not take your lumps because he still would be, if, if he would have came to a KU roster with Frank Mason, or if he would have came to an NBA roster with LeBron James, you know, you're still being asked to do a lot and be a starter and be a good player. But there is a difference between being that guy that everybody's looking to and not, and there's a difference between actually having time, especially at such a young age, to learn on the job while you're doing that. And he never had that opportunity. He was never afforded the patience around him to have that chance. And so he gets traded over to the Warriors. He has that. He's not the best player on the team. It's Stephen Curry. He's not the biggest leader on the team. You have Draymond Green, who's kind of the vocal and the heartbeat guy of that team. And he just kind of gets to fit into a role for the first time in his career and learn from the tutelage of successful veterans like that. And a guy that, you know, was putting up 20 points per game in Minnesota, but even though he's this explosive, uber-athletic wing, not a guy who's known for his defense. But now he gets into a system where he's held accountable and he has the best defender in the league who is a really smart guy and a great leader in Draymond Green. And all those things start to come around. It was the perfect situation for him to come on, come into. And, and right now in the finals, seven players have taken 20 or more shots. Of those seven, Wiggins is second in field goal percentage among NBA Finals players, only to Stephen Curry. Jason Tatum, who basically plays the same position as Andrew Wiggins. They're both wings. Jason Tatum has taken nine more shots than Andrew Wiggins. Wiggins has made one more shot than Jason Tatum. It doesn't mean it's going to last. It doesn't mean that Andrew Wiggins is a better player or anything because Jason Tatum is unbelievable. The point there is that he is having a big impact on the finals, and he might just be the second-best player on a team that might win the finals. And the growth that he has had is both a reminder not to give up on young players, even if we've seen them three, four years, because you're coming out at 18. You still have a lot of growth even when you're 22 or 23 or 24. But also that sometimes it really just is about the situation and you need that right situation to kind of take that final push and take that final stride, which is what Andrew Wiggins is doing. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. David Lesky of Inside the Crown talks Royals with us in about 15 minutes. Did you know that on our website, klwn.com, as well as our sister stations, 1059kissfm.com, bull929.com, we have a program called Hometown Deals. So you click the tab, and it takes you to a magical place where gift cards are 50% off. We have handfuls of different restaurants and places that you can go to that you can get a 50% off gift card to. So just go to the website, click Hometown Deals, and you'll see some of those gift cards for 50% off. If you're a business and interested in being part of this as well and getting featured ads at no cash price and just gift card cost, shoot us an email, djohnson at gpmnow.com. About 20 till 4, this is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320KLWN. And it's that time on a Monday to talk to David Lesky of Inside the Crown. And uh, David, I've been looking forward to this. Didn't get to talk to you last week. It was Memorial Day, so it's been a few weeks since then. And there's been a lot that's happened for the Royals. Mostly bad, but certainly a lot has happened uh, over these last couple weeks. Um, I, I guess... With all these things going wrong, and I know you've talked about this. I think this was a big talking point for you actually last week. Like at some point, the buck has to kind of stop with the owner, um, with John Sherman. And 
I guess like I I remember there being a lot of hope and optimism when John Sherman purchased the Royals and that you know maybe they'll be a, a little bit bigger of a spender and maybe they'll be more committed maybe to winning from the front office brass. I guess the question I have now, given the the lack of change that is happening right now, given that we haven't really seen like a marquee move so far in, in free agency or you know trading it, and maybe that's more to the front office's dismay. But like, are we so sure that John Sherman is this like great owner? Yeah, I mean, we don't know honestly, and I I, I think. I think the answer on John Sherman is going to come before the end of this calendar year. Um, and I mean, probably well before, honestly. Um, but, you know, I, I think that there's, and I'm, I'm, I'm to blame somewhat. I think that there is maybe a little bit more, uh, I don't think the right word, but just coming down on Sherman than, than is necessary because I mean, just, just the quick timeline, you know, he took over his owner after 2019 2020, you can't evaluate anything. I mean, anybody who tries to glean anything from that season uh, should not be involved in making decisions. I think, I, I think, I think everybody can agree with that. Um, and then 2021 was kind of a weird year because they, they finished so well with their young guys leading the charge in the rotation at least and against a tough schedule. And so I, I, I can kind of understand him saying, Hey, we're going to stay the course here because, the minor leagues have turned things around. The big league club looked good at the end of the year. It kind of makes sense. And then, you know, we're 50, what is it, 52 games into the season now, and it's horrible. <laughs> it, is, it is beyond awful. But I, that, that, that's also quick to turn from, hey, I see a lot of progress, to you're all gone. Um, but that said, it's not too quick once we get to October. October 5th, I believe, is the last game of the season now with the extra three games added. That's that's enough time. 162 games of seeing a lot of really troubling signs um, at the top and then a couple of steps removed from the top. Like, just just a lot of weird, just weird stuff, honestly. Um, Nonsensical in some some ways. Um, that's, That's enough time. And so... I, the answer to your question, I don't know what John Sherman is as an owner, but I think if you ask me again in six months, I'm going to, and I hope I like it. <laughs> I really do. I, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I, we just, we just have no way of knowing if we will like it. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's kind of where it is. And you, the, the Royals are right now in a spot you never want to be in. They're in limbo. You want to have a they, they, they haven't had a clear direction in a long time, but I mean at least you felt like they were kind of trending the right way, and I, and I think overall they probably still are, but oh, it's just so hard to see it with with the way the season has started. I guess my biggest worry of you know not making changes right now is that what happens if we because we I mean we've seen this story how many times we get to September and there's nothing really to play for, but all of a sudden the Royals go twenty and ten or right. something like that, and all of a sudden there's this renewed hope that look they're trending in the right direction let's see what they can do headed into next year that if you're not making changes now and then that comes around and that happens and you finish uh, what would that be like 68 and 94 or something like that yeah, but you finished on on kind of a hot streak and you go yeah but things are trending in the right direction like we're we're fine with Cal Eldred we're fine with Mike Matheny we're fine with 
this, this, and that. Uh, that would be my biggest worry because I just I, I feel like we've seen that story enough that um, I don't know. I guess history just repeats itself. No, I, you, and I don't. I can't argue with that because you're right. It, it, it could happen. Um, what I think I would hope for, and and this is where I have the confidence in John Sherman, is that he's not stupid. I mean, I don't think you can build what he's built in his life by being an idiot. And I think that you have to be able to have some critical thinking skills and, you know, I mean, very basic life skills, honestly. And, and I think I, what I would hope for is if the Royals do go 20 and 10 down the stretch, I don't, I don't know off the top of my head what their schedule looks like. I don't, if I remember correctly, I think it's a fairly light schedule to end the year, um, especially if the Guardians are done, I think, because they have six games in Cleveland to end the season. So that much I know for sure. I would hope that it would not be a, well, the record was good, so everything is good conversation. Now, again, I don't know that that's the case. I think you know, a lot of people look at last season and say, well, they finished strong until they gave they got our hopes up. But again, think about that schedule they played in August. I mean, it, it's easy to forget now, but they played two series against the Astros, two against the Mariners, who won 90 games. They had that first series back in Toronto, which, geez, no, I, I don't care that the 27 Yankees weren't going to win that series. And the Royals got swept. Right? I mean, they, they're not a good team, so whatever. But they played a tough schedule. They played a lot of the White Sox down the stretch. A lot of the Tigers who finished strong. I mean, remember the Tigers were, gosh, I can't remember, 9-24 and 24 to start and finished, I think, eight games under 500. So that means they, they, they played a like an 88-win pace after their start of the season. So they had a tough schedule, and they played well. It's different than playing well against an easy schedule. And, and I think that that's, that's something that I would hope that, that would, the evaluations would take into account. And if they don't, then again, we have our answer. I, we may not like the answer we get. And that's, and that's what things, because the one thing you can't change is the owner. Anything else in an organization can be changed. And so I'm really hopeful that when we get our answer, it's the answer we like. Um, because if it's not, oof, I, don't, I don't know what's going to happen. We're talking with David Lesky of Inside the Crown here. Uh, Vinny Pascantino, another thing where things refuse to change. They refuse to just call him up. But the good news is Carlos Santana, uh, I guess, not getting a- as many plate appearances now. So that's a positive. But uh, why why is Vinny Pascantino not up yet? The honest answer is the biggest shrug emoji in the world because um, I have no earthly idea. It, it, it makes zero sense. Um, the Royals' answer is um, – no, I can't say it on the radio. Never mind. The Royals' answer is not <laughs> what I would – I mean, you could, but I'm uh, thankful you didn't. Yeah, no, I won't. Um, I'll, I'll keep you fine for you for now. <laughs> but Thank you. I, I mean, look, it, it's, this is a guy who – He's, he's walking a ton. He's not striking out. He's hitting for power. He's hitting for average. He's doing literally everything you want. And this is what bothers me about the Royals so much. They always talk about you have to, a player has to be performing and there has to be a spot for him. Well, I, I think, I don't know, but I think there's a spot for him at first base. Uh, just, just a hunch. I know Hunter Dozier's played well, and, and he's playing a lot of first base right now. Um, and, and DH is taken up by one of Salvador Perez and MJ Melendez a lot of the time. Now tonight, Melendez is in right, and Salvi's catching, and Whit Merrifield is, is DH. So, I mean, I, I think 
given the flexibility, you may not like Hunter Dozier in the outfield, but he can play it. Um, and given the flexibility of their roster, I, I, I think you can find a spot for Vinny Pasquantino and, and his crazy numbers in AAA. Um, and they need to soon. What I'm concerned about, I think this is going to be hilarious. If Andrew Benintendi has to go on the injured list, and they recall Ky- or, um, Nick Prado to play left field <laughs> instead of Pasquantino. <laughs> and look, people want Prado too, so they're not going to be upset. But it's going to be like the most mixed emotion feeling in the world <laughs> if if and when that happens. But um, I guess we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. And yeah, I, I just don't know. It 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 doesn't it doesn't add up. <laughs> they they can say in one breath, "Well, we don't think he's ready," and in another breath, "We don't want him to feel like he has to carry the lineup." Well. If he's not, if he's not ready, then I don't think he's going to feel like he has to carry the lineup. If he is ready, he might feel like that. So it's you know one of those things that it's hard to be one and not the other, um, or it, it can't be both. I guess is what I'm trying to say stupidly. But um, yeah, I just I don't know. I, <laughs> I wish I knew. I, I wish there was a good reason. The Royals so often they'll say things, and you're like, you know, I don't agree with it, but okay, I get it. I don't get this. I just don't see it. Well, let's at least uh, spend some time uh, talking, I guess, positive things. Salvador Perez is four for his last seven. Uh, Back-to-back two-hit games for him after having that kind of ice-cold stretch. And and it was funny because that occurred literally when people were like, why is he still catching? He's dealing with his injury. And then uh, I guess he just goes off. Um, Does he need to keep getting nicked up? Because I remember early in the season he was like, (laughs) I can't see. And then he hits a home run. Do we need to find ways to get like Salvador Perez in like a boxing match? Yeah, no, I, I think you know maybe, maybe that's actually a, the best reason for a Pasquantino call up. He's a big guy. Mm. I think he can do some damage to Salvador Perez. <laughs> so, or you know maybe, maybe it's the other way. Maybe they don't want a big guy who accidentally actually really hurts him. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, no, I, th- I think that um, the key for Salvador Perez is make sure that he is. Like 77% healthy. And I think any less than that, and it's going to be struggles, any more than that, there's going to be struggles. You just have to keep him slightly injured at all times. And so, you know, I, I think that you, you start to look around the team. Is, is that what Merrifield's role? Is that Nicky Lopez's role? I don't know. And that, that, that's where the leadership comes in. And that's, that's where I trust the clubhouse. I think that they know who needs to hurt Salvador Perez every day. Um, and, and what we don't know, does emotional pain count? Like, can we make fun of him? Well, that do I don't know. So, there's a lot of questions to be asked here, and I, th- I think we're really on to something. Um, but whatever it is, keep doing it because it's working. He looks much better in the last two games. He's like the uh, is it the the Black Knight in uh, uh, Monty Python's Holy Grail? Is that the guy who's yeah, like yeah. I, it's just a flesh wound? He just keeps fighting. Yes. He's that. That's that's Salvador Perez. Um, I, so, I don't know, maybe like Andrew Benintendi can transfer over his strained calf to him or, or something. Uh, he'll just be like the robo-man by the end of the year. But um, <laughs> I think it'd be perfect. Yeah, right? Uh, Benintendi, though, as I was mentioning, the strained calf doesn't sound too serious. Like, I can't imagine that's something more than, like, worst case, just a, a quick IL stint or something like that. Um, whenever he is back... Is there any reason that the Royals shouldn't try to deal him as soon as possible as opposed to waiting till the end of July? No, every day they keep him, the value drops. And maybe not every day, maybe it's every four days or whatever, I don't know. But, I mean, he's a free agent at the end of the season. And so his his value, it's not like Brad Keller. Brad Keller, if you want to wait, you wait. Because 
a team's trading for this season and next year. But Brendan Tendy, it's about the 2022 impact and only the 2022 impact. And so every however many days you wait, the value is a little bit less. Maybe maybe it doesn't impact it for a while, but yeah, I think I think they have to move them as fast as possible. Look, I wrote today they're 17 and 35. In order to get to 500, just 500, which by the way right now would be a playoff spot in the American League. Thanks, expanded playoffs. Um, if they were to try to get to 500, they'd have to play at like a 94 win pace the rest of the year. <laughs> I I don't. I could see them playing on a 94 win pace for like 17 games maybe, but I don't think I could <laughs> what would that see that be for like 100. I, it's, I don't know what it would be, but yes, something like that. I, I can see that. I, I just, I just don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think I'm get there. Just a hunch. I think my 79.83, I think I was wrong. Um, I'm going to go ahead and concede that right now. And if I'm proven wrong again, I'll be wrong again. I'm fine with that, but they're not going to get there. You know, you look at what the Rays did last year and Rays and Brewers, um, a little different because both teams were contending, but they made that trade with Willie Adamas. It was in May, actually. The Rays got what they wanted because they moved the guy early. Now, it's also a little different because he wasn't a pending free agent, which I think makes it even more pressing for the Royals to do. So hopefully when he comes back, um, I mean, look, I want to see him too. He's been great. He's watching him hit. has been fun. Plays a good left field. But the best thing for the future of the Royals is he's got to go. And the reality is, if he's on this roster on August 3rd and not on whatever day opening day is next year, that alone to me is a fireable offense because there's no free agent compensation anymore. So you, you better get something for him now or extend him. It, it's one or the other, and, and I, think, I think trading it makes the most sense. Does it make sense to, to trade Zach Greinke at the deadline? Because it is a one-year deal, but also you think about like, – and I, I know this could probably be – come across a little insufferable if your team continues to be this bad um like how much does the leadership aspect or, or that matter when you're this bad but again when you have a young pitching staff I would think having that veteran guy would help um and also I don't know what the market even would be for Zach Greinke it's not like it's the difference between getting a top five prospect from some organization or whatnot but would it make sense to deal him at the deadline uh, yeah I mean well first you gotta get healthy that, that's the biggest thing because I, maybe I've missed it, but I don't think they had an update on him. And that injury that he has uh, usually doesn't lead to good things. So um, hopefully it's hopefully it's not what it sounds like. Um, but, yeah, if he gets back on the mound, I think it makes sense to trade him. You look at, at the Cardinals. They, they picked up Jay Happ and John Lester last year. I think Grinky is better than both were um, if he's healthy. But, you know, the return isn't going to be huge. Uh, but – the Nationals got back Lane Thomas, who played really well for them last year at the end of the season, and then sort of struggled this year. He hasn't completely found his footing, but he had a three-home run game um, last Thursday, Friday. Um, so recently, over the last few days. So you can get back at a talented player for, for a guy like that. And, yeah, I think if he's healthy, they absolutely should move him. I think the leadership, yeah, is important, but also how much does two months of Grinky, you know, really help? And if he wants to be back, just re-sign them. It is this year. Do it again. <laughs> they can always bring him back after the season. So as long as he's pitching, I think it makes sense. I don't know if they will, but I think it does make sense. Okay, uh, last thing I got for you, and this is something I want to start doing every week. Um, I, I should have prepared you for this, but uh, 
I want to ask you a player of the week for the Royals. So who is your player of the week for the Kansas City Royals this past week? Anybody who watched them and didn't <laughs> bomb it. No. Uh, um, guys, that's a good question. Um, I've had a few. I, I, I didn't, you know, I haven't really looked at the stats that closely in the last week other than just like the normal day to day. I would say off the top of my head, player, I feel like MJ Melendez had a good week. Um, he seemed to get hits every time he played. Bobby Wood Jr. had a couple of hitless games and he homered and doubled. So I, I, just off the top of my head, I think MJ Melendez had a nice week. Um, and then, if you want a pitcher, um, let's see, they got one win. Chris Bubich went five shutout and looked terrible, so I'm going to give it to him. <laughs> oh, good. Well, you know, uh, helps with, with the draft pick, I guess, and that's important. There was a correct answer. I know I asked you for opinion. The correct answer was Salvador Perez's finger. Sorry. Oh, gosh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. You know, I, no, I disagree with you. I think the correct answer was my first answer. Anybody who watches the team without vomiting I agree. is the player of the week. I agree. <laughs> uh, which makes you a, a player of the week because you have to cover this team and write stories about them and do the Lord's work. But uh, it, it's worth subscribing to your sub stack because even as bad as the Royals are, your work is tremendous. So, David, I appreciate well, you, you coming on the show as always, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Derek. All right, he's David Lesky. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Shark Sports Talk. Check out his work at Inside the Crown. We'll be right back after this timeout. We are brought to you by Homefield Apparel. Homefield, a premium collegiate apparel brand out of Indianapolis, has incredibly comfortable, officially licensed apparel with vintage college designs because they dig through the archives of your school to find unique logos, mascots, and moments. The Kansas Collection has 14 pieces of apparel, including T-shirts, hoodies, crewnecks, and they are some of the most comfortable things that you will wear, plus they look really cool. And they just released, well, not just, but after the national championship, they released a national championship shirt. Use the code ROCKCHALKSPORTSTALK. That's ROCKCHALKSPORTSTALK, all one word, and you'll get 15%, 15% off your first order. That's right. Code Rock Shock Sports Talk, all one word for 15% off with home field apparel on your first order. Tough getting out of bed this morning after your weekend long bender? I gotta get out of here. I think I'm gonna lose it. Uh oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Instead of focusing on Monday, it's time to rehash the glory days of the weekend that was right now on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. You're freaking me out, man. I got a massive headache. Okay, let's just calm down. How much does it calm down? Look around you. With Derek Johnson. When you come in on Monday and you're not feeling real well, does anyone ever say to you, sounds like someone has a case of the Mondays? No. No, man. Case of the Mondays on your You Yesed It Monday here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Yes, last week we did it on a Tuesday because we have Memorial Day off. I'm Derek Johnson. In with me is Lane Gillespie here. First up, case of the Mondays, the L.A. Angels. L.A. Angels uh, have lost... 11 straight games you don't see that much in the mlb even from like that like the royals don't lose 11 straight games in a row let alone a team who the angels were sitting there at 10 games over 500 i mean this was this was a team who was the top wild card they were in contention for the AOS with the houston astros they've now lost 11 straight games they're under 500 Jeez, Louise. They were they were first place at the end of April, weren't they? Yeah, they yeah. were. Oh my gosh! I mean, you have all that star <laughs> power with Mike Trout, Shohei Otani, um, Noah Syndergaard, who you trade for from the Mets, and the game they lost—I forget if it was Saturday or Sunday. I think it was yesterday. 
against the Phillies was like the cream de la cream. It was the chef's kiss. The chef's kiss. <laughs> you have uh, they're up six to two in the bottom of the eighth inning. Phillies load the bases. Bryce Harper comes up, whacks a grand slam. They end up going on to win the game. They've lost eleven in a row. I just, I I don't know. Is Mike Trout cursed? Maybe. Did the Royals start that curse? Possibly? How do you recover from that? That's, the, That's thing. the thing. Not even as a player, as a fan. How do you recover from that? But the beauty of it is that it's so early in the season that you're just one game under 500 right now. I think if you would have told Angels fans, like big picture, you know, at the start of the season, you're going to be sitting at 26 and 27 through 53 games after you have been devoid of playoffs for the past handful of years. They would say, huh, you know what? I might take that because we're still in the mix of things. I mean, they are still the third wild card right now which kind of speaks to adding the two more wild cards in the MLB and how much it kind of opens things up. Um, so, who knows? Maybe they could still be a playoff team. Maybe an 11-game winning streak is coming to balance things out. Next up, case of the Mondays, people who root for the underdogs internationally. You know, you may be rooting for the underdog. You're like, I'm tired of seeing this Rafael Nadal guy win. Doesn't matter. Wins the French Open. Maybe saying, ah, Lionel Messi, tired of him. Heard his name too many times. Well, scores five goals. Uh, Rafael Nadal has fully mastered the French Open. He has won his 14th French Open title. That is absolutely ridiculous. He has 22 total Grand Slam wins. 14 of the 22 are in the French Open to begin with. And, and I was looking at, at the leaderboard among French Open leaders, and this is a tournament that's been you know decades and decades and decades of time. Second and third place for the most French Open titles combined have 14. Rafael Nadal all by himself has 14. He's, he's just mastered dirt, clay, whatever it is, mud. I don't know. Do you I, watch tennis at all? A little. How old is he at this point? He's got to be like 40. Yeah. Something like I, that. I, how I don't do really your, watch how tennis. Do your, how, do your, how does your body in your 40s just put up with that and still win big time titles? I just don't understand it. I, I don't understand. Yeah, he, he's figured something out. I don't know. Maybe he has like some special shoes or something. Um, I would love to hear a story about somebody who has... Like bet on Rafael Nadal to win the French Open every year. He's he's and, and just like how much money he's won over the course of it. He's he's probably a favorite most of the years. So maybe not winning that much money, but like this year, like you said, he's like forty years old. So, but he's not an underdog, Derek. That's the thing. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. So you're not you're winning money, but you're not winning yeah. much. We're fourteen out of twenty two, and then Lino Messi. Um, Argentina's won thirty three straight matches. They haven't lost in thirty three straight matches. They won 5 nothing. He scored all five goals. That's ridiculous. You don't see that in soccer. It's like, oh, if you get a brace, that's a big deal. If you get three goals, hat trick, like, that's a huge deal. He scored five. Old uh, Father Time, I guess, case of the Mondays as well here for those two guys. Uh, next up, case of the Mondays, Morbius. So, Morbius, I never saw Morbius um, for good reason. It got terrible reviews and everything. It's uh, the... It's, it's not, I don't know, I guess it is technically Marvel, but it's owned by, like, Sony Studios. Um, they released this film with Jared Leto. He basically, like, Dracula, essentially. And it bombed at the box office. Did very poorly. Got very bad reviews. Um, didn't come out well. And basically over the last couple of weeks, people have taken to social media, to Twitter, all these different sites, and just released all these memes, just making fun of the movie. And, and, like, joking about, you know, it, it's Morbin time. Like, that that's going to be his, like, key catchphrase when he goes into, like, whatever vampire <laughs> mode. That he's just like, oh, it's Morbin time. 
And it, it became such a joke, and there were so many memes about it that, that caught on so much with social media that studio executives took it as, oh, look, all these people are talking about Morbius. Morbius is trending on Twitter. People love this movie. They're writing memes about and blah, blah, blah. Let's capitalize on all this positive, even though it's making fun of us, it, it's positive because they're talking about us and they're laughing about it, which is a good thing. Let's take advantage of this. Let's re-release the movie. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> they re-released the movie over the weekend, and it made $85,000 on Friday, which, yes, like, to me, that's a lot of money. But $85,000 for, yeah. That's bad. Yeah. For, for a movie that um, cost millions and millions of dollars to pay these actors and, and create and stuff on one day nationwide to make $85,000. I mean, I, how many theaters are there, right? Like, there's probably 85,000 theaters. I don't know, maybe more. Well, do they just add up all the ticket sales? Is that what it is? Or something I, like that? Because I if, guess. They, if they did, that's like that's that's roughly 30,000 people that watched it. Yeah, right? Because tickets are, yeah. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> it's crazy. So it, it gets re-released. It bombs again. And uh, maybe they'll have learned their lesson. But uh, I would think that'd be funny if they, they took it off and then people, like, memed even harder. And then they decided, no, let's bring it back one more time. I'm telling you, this is the right time. And then it bombs <laughs> A third time. I think they're planning on making a second one, which I don't know about that. Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, next up, case of the Mondays. Missouri State Baseball. Uh, Missouri State Baseball was up 12 nothing on Oklahoma State. You saw Oklahoma State. I saw Missouri State, too. Oh, you did? That's right. They played KU. Um, Twice and killed KU both times. Yeah. Well, both teams, good teams. <laughs> Who would you have thought coming into that game was going to beat the other? Uh, oh, I don't know, because Missouri State... Uh, they probably hit a combined, what, 11 home runs off of mm. KU in two games. Oklahoma State score, scored a combined 15 runs in three games. I probably would have said it was either or. I mean, Missouri State certainly had the home run ball going. They uh, led 12 nothing against Oklahoma State in that game. They're hitting lots of home runs. They ended up losing. They didn't just lose like 13-12. to 12. <laughs> They lost 29-15. to 15. So Oklahoma State finished the game on a twenty-nine to three run. How, how? How do you? Do, that's just my question. Especially with Oklahoma State, when we saw them, when when KU saw them, their offense was terrible. That's the thing. How do you score twenty-nine runs just like that after being down twelve nothing? What's crazy to me? You look at the box score of this game and uh, the left on base of this one. Oklahoma State left fifteen more players on base. Missouri State only left three. Oh so, like, God. theoretically, this could have gotten even worse. This could have been, like, 35 to 16 or something like that. But 29 to 15, the final score there. Um, I, I I said this, I think, last week on, on Case of the Mondays for, you know, ball boys and part-time employees and umpires and stuff who had to work that UCLA-Oregon State yes. game. <laughs> it was 25-22 because uh, there's so many pitches. If you're an umpire doing so many squats, if you're behind home plate. Um, if you're a ball boy, you're constantly shaking. That game lasted five hours and 44 minutes. Did the Oregon State-UCLA one. This one lasted five hours and, I think, nine minutes. That's brutal. As, a, as, a, as someone that has announced KU baseball games, I would have just said, <laughs> I want to go home. The, I think the longest game I broadcasted was a four-and-a-half-hour, 14-inning game, and that was it. Five hours, nine minutes, and a nine-inning game. I would I would have died Three and a half hours in. You run out of done. things to talk about. It's yeah. also no fun when you run out of room on your scorecard. Um, oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm, I'm, my, I'm assuming. My scorebook only carries to 14 innings, and you obviously have to go to the next one when yeah. they hit around. I'd be hitting off of the – let alone not even just off of the scorebook, 
off of the table going into the next door press box. Uh, I would be it would be terrible. I and I always hate when my scorecard always has to carry over to the next inning. I would have thrown my scorebook into the trash can. Well, also case of the Mondays off that note though to people who don't like the sound ping cuz uh NCAA tournament for baseball, that's how those two teams played. And currently the College World Series for women's softball are going on and with the metal bats there's a lot of pinging. Um I've heard people have asked me this before like why um, and I, I don't know why they ask me. I'm not like an expert on this stuff. But um, <laughs> like, why? Why did just college baseball? Why do they use metal bats? Why don't they use wooden bats like the pros? And the answer is simple. It's a money thing. Um, you have, first of all, in college, you have whatever 40, 50, maybe with like walk-ons. I don't know. I guess a lot of the kids are walk-ons because there's not as many scholarships. But um, you have 40 or 50 kids on the roster, right? Over the course of a season, like MLB players have a sleeve of bats. They maybe have like 10 to 12 bats or something like that. I don't know. Maybe some guys go through more. I'm sure it just depends uh, on the player. Um, those are expensive. And they have a finite amount. And then, you know, you have to pay for more if you run out, stuff like that. Because they do break on, on you know, right. a lot of inside fastballs and, and stuff like that to where it's going to cost a lot of money for, for players to have that. And... Um, for a sport that is, like you think of basketball and football as the revenue-making sports, they're not going to want to invest that much for all those bats. So that would be, I guess, my answer to that question that maybe you did or did not care about. Uh, next, for Case of the Mondays, Yankees fans who come up with mock trade proposals. But also at the same point in time, this might actually be their time to shine. I don't know. I, I don't know where to stand on this. Um, the best part about, I don't know if it's the best part. It's almost the worst part, but it's the best part to like make fun of. There are fans of, of every fan base who, when we get to, and this goes for every sport ever, when we get to, like, trade season, it's like, who says no to this trade? And, and the team who, who the, I guess, whatever the guy, the, the team is a fan of, he's going to, you know, send out a trade that clearly favors that team, and it's like, we're going to give up two of our, our trash players for your great player. And, like, all, all the fans of that team will respond to him and be like, oh, we would never do that. This guy's going to be great. And then all the people of the other team are like, why would we do this? That is a terrible trade. Um, that happens a lot with Yankees fans. And, and the running joke has been on social media and, and through baseball Twitter and, and baseball, you know, trade circles and stuff that every Yankees, like, there's that one meme of the, the guy who, like, I'll give you this for this, and it's, like, a terrible trade. Um, it's like we'll give you Clint Frazier and Miguel and Duhar. You give us your worst or your best player. And it's like we have a deal. Um, Clint Frazier already left. He went in free agency to the Cubs this past offseason. Now Miguel and Duhar is requesting a trade from the New York Yankees. Which, again, like you could make the argument that this is actually great for those fans because now it's like real. He's he's gonna get traded. He wants a trade. So those fans are like, oh, real trades coming. We're good to go. Let's. Let's, you know, get all our inventory out of all these fake Miguel Andujar trades. Miguel Andujar for Mike Trout. Let's do it. But when you request a trade, your value gets bumped down. Um, he's in the minors, so it's kind of tanking his value. And, and that's got to be a realization when you're in the minors, you're requesting a trade, that you're not a huge trade chip like you might think. And uh, not that he necessarily thinks that, but that a lot of those fans do. And, and when they do trade him, They'll no longer be able to use him anymore in those in those lights, in those fake trades. The time is nearing its end 
Um, have you seen any of those before? I, I have, have not. not. No. <laughs> I'm telling you, they're out there. Okay, last one for Case of the Mondays. Following the rules. Following the rules was not followed over the course of uh, the weekend. We just had our uh, program director, Joel, stop in here. Yeah, and he was telling timing. us. Yeah, I know, right? I guess I could put this one in there as well. Uh, probably better coming from his mouth. But uh, he's in like a, an adult rec hockey league. And I guess the other team cheated uh, around the rules with roster management and stuff. You weren't supposed to add new players at the end of the regular season into the playoffs. They added five new players, added a bunch of ringers, and they lost in the playoffs because of it. Uh, how about Uruguay, though? Uruguay manager Diego Alonso used more than his allotment of six substitutions. Uruguay was playing Team USA in a exhibition match yesterday. It was over in Kansas City. Got great attendance, great show out. I, I think that'll be a great sign, hopefully, for when the World Cup comes here in 2026, getting a spot in Kansas City. And I would love to be able to go out to World that Cup be, matches. That would be incredible. It would be. So that's great. Uh, what's not great is Uruguay cheating there using more than that allotment of six substitutions and how the officials did not catch that like seems very because what happens is when you enter into a match as a substitution in soccer you have to go to like the sideline official who, who like holds up the board with the numbers and stuff and he like is writing down and he has these like slips he's essentially writing all that stuff down to like keep track of that stuff so how that even happened is beyond me but this just this runs in Europe Uruguay just loves to cheat in soccer I'm sorry. If this is bad for foreign relations, I don't care. Uruguay, pick your stuff up, man. Uh, you did that. You had Luis Suarez, who was just famous for, like, biting people. Um, so that's not great. And then I remember, I think it was 2010 World Cup. I could be wrong with that. Uh, they were playing Ghana in the quarterfinal round. It was after Ghana beat Team USA. So I think it was 2010. And uh, Ghana just had, like, a an open net, essentially, they shoot the ball, and the goalkeeper was, like, away. He had already dove and made a save, and maybe the ball's free, or maybe he was just on the wrong side of the net where the shot was going. And one of the defenders for Uruguay just straight up, the, it's going to, like, the upper 90, like, upper corner of the, the net where he just wasn't going to get there with his head. So he just straight up, like, slaps the ball down with his hand to avoid it going in which is, like, clearly a penalty, and Ghana got a penalty <laughs> kick out of it, which they ended up missing, which I guess you could say, well, that's just, you know, being competitively smart. Um, and, you know, if you could easily also say, well, Ghana should have just taken advantage of their penalty kick. But, man, that, that feels like bending the rules a little right. bit there, right? Like, you intentionally, I don't know. That would have been a goal if not for you cheating. So, that, I don't know. I, I don't feel great about Uruguay. Uh, a bunch of cheaters... Sorry if you're from Uruguay. Don't care. Do better. <laughs> That's Case of the Mondays. He's Lane Gillespie. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Truck Sports Talk on FM 1017, 1320 KLW. We got to hear from Cam Martin and KJ Adams earlier today at a KU basketball media availability. We'll share those audio clips coming up for you the rest of this hour. Joined now by Cole Aldridge former Jayhawk and uh, a member of having his jersey retired up in the rafters over in Allen Fieldhouse. Always a cool award for Cole Aldrich. Coming back to town this week for the Rock Chalk Round Ball Classic, which always a great time. Uh, 
get to see all your former teammates and reconnect with different generations and stuff. Uh, but last we talked, Cole, I know you've been, you know, racking up the miles on the bike. You haven't necessarily been picking up the basketball all the time. Has that changed a little bit over the last couple of weeks and getting ready for the game? No, not at all. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's see. I, I, the last time I touched the basketball was, I think, round ball last year. That's uh, that's that's a long time out for you. So, I mean, is that something where it is just like, I mean, just relating it to the bike where it's just like riding a bike where it's just that simple. You get back on and, and you can make it work again. Yeah, I mean, the the fun thing about the charity games, you know, especially round ball is it it's just more of the experience than it is, you know, really the competitive nature. You know, everything kind of kicks in those last handful of minutes, but you know, those first those first few quarters are just, you know, having fun and, you know, getting the little kids out on a court if they're able to and you know, just having fun out there with some old teammates and some guys that, you know, maybe I didn't play with, but we're still friends. Yeah. One of those guys, Greg Ostertag is going to be in attendance this year. And I don't think he's, he's ever made a round ball before Uh seven foot two big man. He's going to be down in the paint. I think working against you. Is that going to be kind of a, a fun matchup for you? I, I know it's not like ultra serious or you're looking at scouting reports or anything like that, but is that going to be kind of fun to, to kind of go toe to toe with a, uh, another former, uh, seven footer. It, yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. You tell Greg that I'm going to run circles around. <laughs> I got about 10 years on him. So, <laughs> well, uh, I'm going to make him run up and down the court a lot. Yeah, that's the key. I, I think that, that you can make it a, a, a distance kind of game. Um, with your ability to, to just run up and down the court because clearly you're in shape. What's what's the longest distance you're, you're getting to, to bike right now? I'm starting to become the old guy, which, you know, is, is, so, is so weird in so many ways, but I keep in good shape and, you know, I enjoy just coming back and just seeing a bunch of friends and supporting a great cause. Yeah, that's for sure. Do you have a, a favorite moment? In, in, I, I know you've been in a lot of these round balls, so uh, maybe it's hard to choose one moment or, or something like that, whether it's hanging out with the guys, whether it's with the recipients or uh, just through the whole week of events that occurs. Do you have a, a favorite moment or maybe a couple moments that stick out to you in round ball uh, of the past? You know, I think I think the last few years has been – more special than some of the other years just for the fact of you know the times of the world and you know just everybody kind of being secluded to themselves and then last year you know being able Brian able to to put on round ball again last year was was so much fun because I think just everybody needed it you know I know the families really needed it and Brian was still able to you know help kind of from afar without having the events that he has but bringing everybody together last year again was was so much fun it just kind of just put everybody at ease and just brought us back to you know just a happy place yeah and uh hopefully we get even bigger and better this year it seems like every year it just continues to grow and and one up the previous year which is awesome you know i just i just realized something else i think last time we talked to you i don't know several months ago you, you said that 
the uh, infamous tooth. Uh, you, you you had it set up to get fixed, or maybe you had gotten it fixed at the dentist. I just realized if, if that's the case, is there any hesitation in uh, being worried playing out there that you could take a stray elbow back to the mouth? <laughs> uh, the infamous tooth is finally fixed. It, uh, I think it was 12 years in the making, maybe 13. Um, I'm not worried about it. You know, I, it, it kind of happened as a freak thing in the game and, you know, it, it took forever for me to finally kind of come around and get it fixed because I was playing and I was really worried about, you know, getting hit there and then end up breaking my jaw. So I kind of held off for a long time, which maybe made the process a little longer, but I'm not worried about this weekend. It's going to be just a, a fun thing. I don't, I don't think I'm going to stick my nose in anybody's elbow, so... <laughs> No, I mean, if it did happen, though, hypothetically, at that point, you just have to be like, well, it was it was meant to be. That tooth wasn't meant to be there. <laughs> I'll let you tell my wife that. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I mean, hey, the guy you're going up against, I mentioned Greg Ostertag. Apparently, he's he's gotten big where you've gotten big into, like, the cycling. He's gotten big into, like, hockey. So, I mean, I I couldn't imagine seeing a seven foot two center as, like, a defender or something in my, like, adult rec hockey leagues I'm going to play in, but um, I don't know. Maybe he has he has some uh, near tooth loss experiences from from taking hockey pucks and out there, anything like that. Uh, which I am curious because obviously you're a Minnesota guy. Was that ever like a a path for you? Was that ever a sport that you played growing up? Hockey. I, you know, I never played hockey. Um, I played like a little broom ball in okay. in school for, you know, gym class and whatnot, but nothing competitive. Hockey was always, uh, dare I say, a rich person sport because... That's expensive you know, with, with the equipment, pads right? and, yeah. yeah, I mean, you get pads and, and, uh, and skates and helmets and gloves and sticks. I mean, it's it's not a cheap sport. And I had a few friends that played hockey, and, you know, rink time is so so valuable that some of our high school, you know, they had to practice at like 5.30 in the morning just to have open rink and be able to do that. Mm-hmm. So I stuck, to, I stuck to basketball. I played kind of a little bit of everything else when I was really young, but basketball was just one of those things I enjoyed. If, if you wouldn't have played basketball, was there another sport that you were best at outside of hoops? Um, you know, my high school football coach always wanted me to go out and play tight end, you know, just kind of like a red zone, just lob her up and, mm-hmm. you know, have me go and get it. Um, that, you know, that would have been fun to play football. I could have been a picture, but, you know, just kind of, I played basketball for so long that it just kind of took over. Yeah, I mean it. It helps when when you grow as tall as you did. Like obviously, the path there is going to be basketball. Um, so we do we do like a points draft every year with the Rock Truck Round Ball Classic. It's just for pride. We don't have anything on the line or anything like that. But we just we draft the players who are participating, and you know we we have a couple people do it, and whoever ends up with the most points scored uh, ends up the winner. What can you give us? Uh, what's the scouting report on Cole Aldridge heading into this thing? Like, what's what's the point expectation here? Oh man, 
I can give you 20 rebounds, no problem. <laughs> Points? Uh, you know, it kind of depends on who's on my team because I know Ben's not going to make it this year, but, you know, Mario Little, Tyshawn, there's some guys that are still playing. So, you know, they're – they're more in that mindset of, you know, that this is kind of what I do when I play is, is go score the ball. Um, so I might, I might just give you 20 off of 10 offensive rebounds. I don't know. It depends on who, uh, who drafted me. Well, I, I was going to say, it feels like in, in years past, um, because this is, you know, it's, it's not like an event that it's not for the Super Bowl. And like you said, like once you get to the last couple minutes, guys start taking it pretty seriously, which I, I love. But um, it, it's it's a showmanship event. And so, you know, I, I, I remember, I, I think it was last year, maybe it was two years ago, where there was, there was a time where I, I think it was the team you were on missed like three or four straight threes from the outside. And I think you got like the offensive rebound like every single time and you just you could have just taken like an easy layup but you just kept passing it out so um i guess what i'm saying here is if if i draft you for the points draft can we come to an agreement that you just put those easy bunnies up how many points do you need (laughs) Uh, as many as possible can you get me 10 can you get me double digits oh yeah i can get you 10 okay that's not a problem okay i like it i like it um I also, uh, friend of the show, Brandon McAnderson, uh, football player, if he's in it, I, I don't know if he's oh, yeah. on your team or if he's on the other team, um, but it would make our day here at the show, and I know we'd have a little ribbing with BMAC, if uh, you were able to swat Brandon McAnderson out of this world. But I don't know if he'll have the <laughs> shot attempts to do it. Um, nonetheless, uh, is there typically a, you know, just... I guess, like you talked about, guys who are still playing. Um, as as we kind of look at that that points draft of like who can score us the most points, is, is there like a, a trait or or an ideal type of thing that some of these players do to score a lot of points in an event like this? You know, I always think about like Ben because Ben's come for you know the last five years or so, and you know he was. Always so good at scoring, you know, high school, college, in the league. That's kind of, you know, what he does. He finds ways to just put a bunch of points up. Um, you know, in these games, it's kind of hard because it's loose. So you can just kind of get hot real quick, or you can really just, you know, be cold for a long time. What's the most points that you've ever scored in a basketball game, whether it was high school, as a kid, college, pro, whatever it is? Um, I had 44 when I was, like, Whew. eighth grade. <laughs> um, I had 20, oh, man, what did I have? 28 and 24 when I was in China That's... with, like, seven blocks. Whew. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I think, I think my KU was only like 23, maybe 25, if that. Which is probably a testament to like, with a, yeah, you had so many good dudes on your team that it just spread out, right? Yeah, I mean, I averaged 15 and 12 one year, I think maybe 16, but you know, it was, it was a constant 16, 18, you know, kind of that thing with Xavier and the Twins and Sharon and, you know, 
all those guys that were really good at scoring, I, you know, they relied me more on the defensive end and to get rebounds. Well, that the Dayton game I know sticks out for a lot of people. You have a triple double in the second round of the NCAA tournament with blocks as the third part of the triple double, which you don't see a ton of um, in basketball to begin with. Uh, would you classify that as as like your? I, I don't know. Is, is this something where like you felt like you were in the zone? Is that like the the best game you feel like you had, or or is there something else that sticks out? You know that that was a. It was just a, a fun game all around because it was a year that Sharon and I had a lot of a lot on our shoulders, and we had to we kind of had a lot to prove, quite frankly, to ourselves and to everybody else because. You know, we had just won the national championship the year before, and here it is, Sharon and I and a bunch of incoming freshmen, which we had no idea how good they were going to be towards the end. Um, and then the game was in Minneapolis, so I was at home in front of friends and family. So, you know, that meant a little more. And, you know, I, I don't even think I realized that what kind of had happened until – maybe the very end of the game. And then probably years later, then it kind of really set in because at that time I was the only one with the triple double in school history. You know, Jeff came around later, I think two years afterwards and, and had one, but I'm one of two or three in the tournament for blocks. So, it, you know, it's, it's a, it's a really special game that I remember very fondly. And you brought up there, you know, coming back off a title year, um, and, and you and Sharon are kind of asked to do all this for this team coming back. That's kind of similar to, to what's going to happen for some of these guys, like Jalen Wilson, Dewan Harris come back. Outside of that, it's a lot of newcomers. It's a lot of freshmen coming into the team for this year. So how did, how did Bill Self kind of get you ready? Was the onus kind of on you guys? How did you approach – uh, being ready to all of a sudden go from you know a, a little bit smaller roles in the title team as kind of role players to all of a sudden now we're the stars of the team. You know the good thing about some of the guys that are coming back this year is like Jalen has a bunch of experience. You know my freshman year, sure I played every game, but I didn't really play a whole lot, and you know I didn't have maybe necessarily that experience of you know kind of being at the end of the games in the college game. Um, but as the season went on, you know, I started to figure it out and I just kind of thrived and it just became, you know, so much fun of just figuring it out. And, you know, we went through a real tough patch early on or kind of the middle of the season. I think we lost to Washington in overtime that we should have won. But, you know, kind of things like that really – gets you going and prepares you for the end of the year because you know that we like big 12 titles and you know tournament titles and all that but you know the NCAA tournament is really what you want to do we're talking with Cole Aldridge uh last question I got for you um obviously back to the round ball Uh, what can you say about the I guess uh I don't know, whole process here, what this means to you, what this means to the community, and, and what this means to the, the recipient families uh, that you've seen, whether it's been in the past or headed into this year. You know, it's so special. Brian has just kind of taken this on and growing it, and 
it, it's such a special thing, even more so now having a, you know, a child and, you know, knowing, you know, kind of just how precious they are. Um, and, and I can't imagine going through some of the stuff that these families are going through and the hardship, not only financially, but mentally and physically seeing their child, you know, ill. Um, it's heartbreaking, but the greatest thing is, is people come together for a great cause. Guys come in town, support it year after year. And it's just so much fun. And, and they do a wonderful job. He is Cole Aldridge. You'll see him at the Rock Chalk Round Ball Classic. Get your tickets. Come on out. It's a great event for a great cause. Cole, I appreciate you being gracious with your time here and uh, looking forward to seeing you on Thursday. Of course. Thank you, guys. That was Cole Aldridge joining us here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson. This is FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it.